Let me pray, and then we'll come to God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you do speak to us through your word. Uh, Thank you that in your word we uh, see the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can know him and we can know life through believing in him. And our Father, I pray that as we read this particular passage tonight, that you might expand our view of Jesus' love for us, that our love for one another might likewise be expanded. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, I think it's fair to say that most of us care about and pay attention to standards. Uh, We want to know what is expected for us in certain areas of life so we don't make fools of ourselves. And and I actually think this kind of comes into play at church. See, take something like our dress standard here at Bundy. Uh, I suspect that many of you have kind of surveyed the general populace here and have concluded the standard is as follows. Well, they don't wear anything too out there. No one's coming here sporting a onesie. And they don't wear anything too formal either, generally speaking. Um, So I reckon I'm not going to stand out. I'm going to wear casual. Standard's probably casual. Or let's say you're, you're new and you're trying to figure out what the general standard is for the way we sing. And you might conclude the following as you kind of look around at us all singing together. Well, they don't seem to hate singing. A lot of them seem to be pretty into it, I suppose. But not many of them seem to go all out with their hands like I've seen in other places. I'm going to go with passionate, hands by my side, maybe with a slight sway here and there. (laughs) Now, it's true that if you wear a onesie to church or if you stand on a chair with your hands raised during our singing, you might stand out a bit, right? But to be honest, if you did that, look, it might distract a few people, but it wouldn't really be the end of the world. I think we could manage. But you see, in this passage that we're looking at tonight, God is telling us that there is one standard that we need to care about more than any other. One standard that if we get wrong will be disastrous for our community here in the 5pm congregation. But if we get it right, will be glorious. It will be wonderful to experience if we get this standard right. And that standard is our standard of love. See, this is a standard which is given to us by Jesus in this passage. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As he loved, so we love. Now, I've broken this passage, as you might be able to see in the outlines, are three parts. The radical display of love by Jesus in the face of his betrayer. The radical demand of love that Jesus gives his people. And the real difficulty of love illustrated in Peter's denial at the end there. So display, demand, difficulty. That's where we're going. So first, Jesus' radical display of love. In verses 18 to 30, Jesus displays selfless love amidst sinister betrayal. And we need to see the pain and the horror of this betrayal in these verses. I mean, think about how you you would feel if you were in Jesus' shoes at this point in time. Knowing that one of your friends is about to betray you and that that betrayal would lead to your horrible and shameful death. And I don't know, maybe some of you actually have experienced the pain of 
betrayal at some level. Maybe some of you have experienced the pain of a cheating boyfriend or girlfriend. The pain of a, a trusted work colleague that put in a bad word to you to the boss in order to sort of advance his own career. Or the knowledge that someone has gossiped about you to another. Now, if you've kind of felt the pain of betrayal, you'll know the sting. Now, just think about how you would feel if you knew that kind of pain was coming again, a thousandfold worse. Well, actually, if we jump ahead into, into verse 21, a little bit into our passage, we get a picture of how Jesus feels in this moment. We don't have to wonder too much. It tells us. See, as he speaks of his betrayal to his disciples, John the author tells us in verse 21 that Jesus was troubled in spirit. Now, that's Bible talk, for Jesus was stressed out to the max at what he knew was coming, what he knew Judas was up to and about to do to him. And actually, verse 21 reminds us that although Jesus is fully God, He's also fully man. And just like uh, an average person, Jesus finds the thought of personal betrayal and death scary, overwhelming, stressful. Now, honestly, if I was in Jesus' shoes, I would want to get out of there. I would want to get as far away from Judas as possible. I'd bolt for the door of that upper room to save myself. Um, if... You're a Seinfeld fan, which I don't know how many of the of you are. I, I grew up on Seinfeld. Um, and there's this classic scene in Seinfeld where George Costanza runs for the door to save himself from a very small kitchen fire. Now, he's at a kid's birthday party. He's in the kitchen and he notices some smoke coming from the oven and he freaks out. And he bolts for the door. In that moment, George's little courage that he may have not really had to start with, but it all fails him. And as he scrambles for the door, he pushes everyone out of his way. The, the clown, all the kids, and even the grandma he throws to the ground. It's ridiculous. George is the first one out of the door, though. You see, if I was in Jesus' position in the upper room here, I suspect I'd be tempted to do a George without a second thought for anyone else. See, faced with our greatest fears, it's so easy to be consumed with our own needs rather than needs of others, with those around us. But look at the picture we get of Jesus in this passage. You see, in Jesus' great distress, when he feels the heat in the kitchen, well, he's not bolting for the door, is he? He's not pushing all his disciples out of the way to get there. No, it's not self-preservation, but self-forgetting we see with Jesus here. You see, notice who is front and center of Jesus' mind in this moment. Look at verses 18 to 20. It's actually his disciples. It's not himself. He's thinking of their well-being and their state of faith amidst all of this. He's concerned for them that they know that what is about to happen isn't an accident, but is part of God's plan to save sinners through Jesus' death. 
And so that's why he's so keen to let them know that his portrayal is in fulfillment of Scripture. Did you notice in verses 18 to 19? I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen. But this is to fill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Quoting Psalm 41 verse 9. I am telling you now before it happens so that, what? You guys will watch my back from now on? No, he doesn't say that, does he? No, he says, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. You see, their faith in him is what matters to Jesus at this point. But it's actually not just the disciples Jesus has in mind, is it here? He's actually also concerned about others who will accept their message about him into the future. Verse 20, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Jesus is thinking ahead to a future where people are listening to the disciples preach about him and accepting him as their Lord. Jesus is concerned for his future followers that they would also know that his death and betrayal was not an accident, but but the means by which they have come to know God. You see, in the midst of his own anguish of this moment, Jesus has the well-being of his people at the forefront of his mind. And I just think that's a wonderful display of selfless love. Now, in verses 22 to 30, Uh, we see Jesus giving his disciples a bit more information about this sinister betrayal that's about to take place. And he actually says, it's one of you guys, verse 21. Now, naturally, all the disciples are sitting around the table shocked and a bit puzzled. Judas, I assume, is sitting there pretending to be shocked and puzzled. But eventually, Peter builds up the courage to ask John to ask Jesus who he's talking about. I love that classic, come on, you do it sort of thing. And Jesus tells John in verse 26, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Now in Jesus' culture, for the host to take a piece of bread, dip it in a tasty bit of sauce, and then pass it to a guest was an act of friendship and love. And you see, that's the great tragedy of what's going on here, isn't it? In the face of Jesus' love, comes Judas's betrayal. Judas is so close to Jesus at this point, but in his heart, so far. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him, verse 27. Now, I don't think this is simply a case of the devil made Judas do this. Uh, In Matthew and Luke's gospel, we're told that Judas is actually at this point in time already gone to the chief priest to see what he can get for selling out Jesus, 30 pieces of silver, as it turns out. But it does seem that with Satan's arrival here, in verse 27, Judas has reached somewhat of a point of no return. Satan is now at work in the life of this faithless disciple. So Jesus told him, verse 27, what you're about to do, do quickly. Don't draw it out says Jesus. Now, although Jesus has at least indicated to John that Judas is the betrayer, 
Uh, the disciples at large, perhaps including John, still don't really get what Jesus is saying here. Uh, their reactions actually show us that Judas was in their eyes perhaps an unlikely candidate for the betrayer. See, notice that they're assuming that Judas is off to do good, not evil. Verse 29, going on a trip to get some more supplies for the festival or to perhaps give something to the poor. Verse 30, but as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Now, it was night in a literal sense uh, at this point. It was the middle of the night. But I think John's using this word in a, a metaphorical sense as well to describe where Judas is at this point, where his heart's at. You see, Judas had now completely collapsed into a state of spiritual darkness from which he would never recover into all eternity. Judas chose 30 pieces of silver over fellowship with his selfless Lord. Uh, what we see in verses 18 to 30 is a radical display of selfless love in the face of sinister betrayal. Jesus suffers through what Judas does to him because he knows that in God's sovereign plan, this betrayal will be used to bring about his death, which will be the means to bring about forgiveness and eternal life to his people. Jesus stayed the course through betrayal and death, to bring life to us. And I suspect most of us long for radical selfless love. We wish we could be selfless lovers, and we wish we could experience selfless love from others. I think this desire is captured pretty starkly in Bruno Mars's song, Grenade, if you've heard of that. Uh, he essentially sings of his desire to give his life for his love, but bemoans the fact that she wouldn't do the same thing for him. And he tends to get quite um, specific throughout the song about all the ways he would want to do this. Uh, the chorus says, I'd catch a grenade for you. I'd throw my head on a blade for you. It's getting kind of full on. I'd jump in, jump in front of a train for you. You know I'd do anything for you. And then he goes on to say the last part of the song, yes, I would die for you, baby, but you won't do the same. Now, it's one thing to speak of selfless love. It's another thing to give it. You see, we actually just don't know when push comes to shove whether Bruno would actually pull off that kind of love or whether or not he'd pull a George Costanza. But you see, in Jesus, the Jesus we are reading about in this passage we have one who pulls off radical, selfless love. He doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. So to put it in Bruno's language, Jesus suffered betrayal for you. That slide is gone. He suffered betrayal for you. He suffered death for you. He rose again from the dead for you, even though we wouldn't do the same. You see, if you want to know real selfless love, put your faith in Jesus and become one of his people tonight if you haven't already. You see, you'll be washed clean like we heard about last week of your sin. 
You'll be given eternal life and you will know a selfless love that will be be beyond compare. Radical display, second, radical love. The radical demand of love. As Jesus loved us, so we must love one another. Uh, With Judas's exit, uh, Jesus knows now that his death is just around the corner, a matter of hours. Uh, But did you notice that Jesus doesn't speak about his death, his forthcoming death as a failure or or a temporary setback in God's plan? It's actually the opposite. Rather, Jesus sort of speaks about this coming moment as the moment of glory for Jesus, for him. I mean, look at how often the word glory and glory, uh, how often the word glory is used in verses 31 to 32. See it there. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus' mind at this point is now fixed on the cross before him. Now, the disciples may not understand all this at this point in time, but they will soon come to know that Jesus' selfless and sacrificial death on that cross is the act in which God, through his Son, is glorified. The cross shows that glorious truth about God, that God loves sinners so much that he sent his son to die for them. The cross shows us that Jesus was so selfless that he took on that mission willingly. And it's in this radically selfless love that we see Jesus' people, and it's that radical selfless love that Jesus' people must reflect to one another. Now, we can never match the magnitude of what the Son of God does when he dies on the cross in terms of the extent of love, but we are to pursue the radical attitude of love that drives Jesus there. Look at verses 34 to 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, Jesus calls this commandment new. Uh, But we need to understand that the call to love one another is not actually new in the technical sense. Leviticus 19.18 has already told the Israelite people to love their neighbor as they love themselves. What is new is the way that love is to be understood As I have loved you, says Jesus, verse 34. The way that love is to be understood this side of Jesus is through the infinitely selfless love that leads him to die for sinners. You see, what does Jesus want our standard of love to be here at Bundy in the 5 p.m. congregation? What's his own selfless attitude that says, you before me, you first, I'll deny myself for you. And you see, when we are loving each other like Jesus loved us, it actually makes the world take notice. In verse 35, we see that. Now, let me just suggest three ways that I think 
this radically selfless kind of love might shock the world around us. I think it'll be shocking in its indiscriminate nature, shockingly unconditional, and shockingly generous if we actually love selflessly like Jesus. First, it's going to be self, uh, selfless love like Jesus will be shockingly indiscriminate. You see, I think the way the world often loves is in a selective way. You see, if left to ourselves, who do we often most choose to associate with or give our time to invite over for a meal? Well, it's people who are similar to us, isn't it? Because they're often the easy choice. It's natural to love those who are on our political side or speak the same language or in the same socioeconomic level. You might have seen this in your friendship circles at uni or in your workplace. Like attracts like in the world. But you see, our love must be governed by Jesus who invites all sorts of people into his kingdom. The whoever back in verse 20 is inclusive. It assumes all sorts of people are going to be listening to the message of the gospel and accepting it. And we, I think we kind of see that among us here at Bundy. People of different backgrounds, ethnicities, ages, interests. We're a bit of a mixed bag here. The church usually is. But you see, indiscriminate love says there is nobody in this church, no matter how different they are from me, who I'm going to ignore in my love. Doesn't mean I'll be best friends with everyone, but I'm not going to ignore anyone when it comes to love. I was talking recently with some international students that came over to our house for dinner. And I got talking to one girl particularly, and she mentioned that one of the challenges for international students uh, in churches in Australia is the feeling that they are sometimes invisible to the majority of people in the church. Now that's kind of a... I felt like that was a bit of a heartbreaking thing to hear, that people could think that they might feel invisible when they're at church. But if we're taking Jesus' selfless love seriously, well, we can't, let in, we can't let there be invisible people in this church, can we? We won't avert our eyes from them or from anyone else. We won't avoid conversation because it's a little bit more difficult. We will look for them and make them feel seen. And we'll remember them the following week. You see, selfless love is shocking in its indiscriminate nature. But second, if we love like our Lord Jesus loved, it's going to be shockingly unconditional. And again, this stands in contrast to the world's approach to love, which I think is often somewhat conditional. See, left to ourselves, our natural tendency is to think, I'll love you on the condition you keep being nice to me. Or I'll love you on the condition that you don't hurt me. But if you start giving me the cold shoulder, I'll give you the cold shoulder. If you slander my name, I'm perfectly within my rights to slander your name. But you see, our love needs to take its cues from Jesus, doesn't it? 
who, as we saw last week, washed the feet of his enemy, his betrayer, and the one who was going to deny him. We need to say that showing love is not conditional. Even if she gives me the cold shoulder, I'll keep loving by remaining gracious and open. Even if I find out that he slandered my name, well, I'll love him by choosing to hold my tongue when the opportunity to slander him in response comes. You see, while there may need to be great wisdom in how we love others, particularly those who hurt us, the question must always remain how, not if. How do we love? Never will we love. Shockingly unconditional. But third, if we love like Jesus, our love will be shockingly generous. And again, this stands in contrast to often how the world approaches love. See, left to ourselves, again, our natural tendency is to put limits on our love, to ensure that it doesn't cost us too much in our time or energy or resources. We like to say, I'm, I'm kind of prepared to love you this far, but no further. But our love, again, needs to take its cues from Jesus, who gave everything for us, though he was rich became poor. To love like Jesus is to daily die, for our, die to ourselves for the sake of others. You see, generous love says, I'm, I'm actually happy to give that person a ride to church, even though that it'll, it'll cost me a bit, put me out. Or when we see someone's perhaps not doing so well in a conversation post-church, generous love says, no, 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 I, I'm actually going to ask one or two more questions to see what's up here. You know, I know that that's going to probably mean I could be talking with this person for the next hour and not have another conversation, but, but for their sake, I'll do it. Now, now, I don't know about you, but one of the ways I was really encouraged by Jonathan's testimony just before was the way in which he talked about being loved by you guys, actually, this congregation, I mean, you might have resonated as well. It was kind of painful to hear of the way he felt kind of excluded at, at different points in his life. But man, it was a joy to hear of the way he felt included when he came here. Yeah, uh, from memory, uh, well, I can't say from memory. I've actually written it down. But from what I read, there was one young married couple who invited him over for dinner who took the time to ask him deep questions about his life, he said. There was a, another one of you who experienced similar trials to him and took the time to, to listen and to give him advice. Wasn't that amazing? He also spoke of two, of two of you who just randomly showed up at his door when an unhappy, unhappy anniversary arrived and, and took time out of your schedule to spend the day with him. I mean, what a picture of generous love. I hope you were encouraged by that. And wasn't it great to hear Jonathan say, I am so thankful to God for the love he has shown me through these brothers and sisters of mine. I hope you were encouraged by that. See, I know we're not perfected yet, but be encouraged. 
That is a picture of a community loving someone as Christ has loved them. Jesus is calling us to make our standard of love here his love for us. Selfless love that is indiscriminate, unconditional, generous. As he loved, so we love. You see, our music may be really cool. Our dress sense may be the envy of every other Prezi church, which isn't hard to do. (laughs) Our Bible knowledge might be remarkable. But verse 35 is telling us that it's the way we love one another that will be what stands out to the world. That's how we will be seen to be Jesus' people, not simply the world's people, just another community group. And if you're a visitor here tonight, that is the sort of love I hope you come to see among us. Selfless love that is indiscriminate, unconditional and generous. I hope you do come to see that. Uh, The third, the real difficulty of love, though, Peter and his denial. Uh, We've seen the display of radical love. We've heard the demand for radical love. But let's consider now the real difficulty of love as we close. You see, the prediction of Peter's denial of Jesus in these last verses reminds us how hard it is for us as followers of of Jesus to love radically. Uh, Although Peter promises to deny himself for the sake of his friend Jesus, when the moment of testing comes, Peter ends up denying Jesus for the sake of himself. I mean, look at the prediction Jesus makes in verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And that's what happens, isn't it? When Jesus, in a few hours' time, goes on a trial before the religious rulers, hauled before their courts, and the moment of testing comes for Peter to stand by Jesus, well, he's not thinking primarily of his friend, but himself. He denies his Lord spectacularly three times and then runs for the door. To love as Jesus loved us is hard work. I don't know about you, but there are many times when when I know I should love selflessly, but all I want to do is run for the door. There are times when I just feel a bit tired, a bit scared of what this love is going to cost me, times when I'm just a bit peopled out or just times when I'm plain selfish. And the last thing I want to do is show indiscriminate unconditional and generous love. See, like Peter and like George Costanza, all I want to do is think about my needs and bolt for that door. Now, maybe you're a bit the same. Maybe like Peter, like me, like George, you find selfless love difficult. Maybe like Peter, you've made big promises to love others that's just fallen flat. This week I'm going to invite that person over for a meal. 
but then you just your schedule gets a bit busy, uh, things get too difficult, and you kind of just politely ask them to postpone. Uh, this week, I'm going to let go of that grudge. I'll meet with that person, I'll, I'll show grace, and I'll listen to where they're coming from. But then you find yourself in that moment doing all the talking, making more accusations, and leaving more bitter than when you got there. See, these kind of scenarios happen all the time, I think. In our heart of hearts, it's difficult to think beyond ourselves, beyond our schedules, beyond our comforts, beyond our hurts. I remember when I was back at uni, getting a hard reality check on where my own heart was at in terms of love. I remember sitting in the Christian Union chaplain, Pete Leslie's office, which I'm sure some of you have sat in before, uh, in my second year, and and he asked me whether I could invite this particular person over for a meal who he knew lived close by to my place to make them feel welcomed into the, the Christian Union community. And it's kind of embarrassing and shameful to admit now, but I essentially said these words to Pete. Look, Pete, I'm, I'm really not sure that's going to work out. Uh, I don't really think I have much in common with this person. And to be honest, I find them quite difficult. Now, in a moment like that, how does selfless love, though difficult, become doable? How do we move beyond ourselves and how do we act more like Jesus Christ in this moment and less like George Costanza? Well, primarily this passage is telling us that that selfless love, radical love comes about through remembering and rejoicing over the way we have been loved. And you see, that's what I actually needed to hear in that moment that I had been loved. I needed to hear about Christ's love for me if I had any hope of showing Christ's love to that person. And that's actually what Pete said. I remember him saying there, me sitting in his chair, Chris, do you think Jesus found you particularly lovable? Well, you... Chris, do you think it was particularly easy for Jesus to go to the cross for you? It was true that I had little in common with this person, but Christ had less in common with me. He was perfect. I was a sinner who rejected God. It was true that I found this person person a bit difficult to love, but how difficult it must have been for Christ to suffer the betrayal of his friend in our passage tonight. Or to, to take those, that mockery from the guards and then to be nailed to a cross. You see, I'm still amazed that Jesus loves me and is committed to me despite my sinful heart. I'm a person that could say something like that in Pete's office. And yet Jesus loves me. You see, I think the way to think less about yourself is to think more about Jesus. 
His death humbles us and drives us to the kind of selfless love that he longs to see among us here. And the good news that we'll come to see in John's gospel is that Christ gives us his spirit to help us in this difficult task. It was only because of God's spirit at work in me, I think, in that moment that I could hear what Pete was saying about Jesus and joyfully invite that person over for dinner. See, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according, uh, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Isn't that a comfort to know we've got God's help in this? Uh, In just a moment, we're going to be singing our next song. Uh, It's a song that reminds us that we worship a servant king, one who loved us and selflessly endured betrayal and death to bring us life. Uh, This is what the last verse says as the band can come up. So let us learn how to serve and in our lives enthrone him, each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ we're serving. See, our servant king has displayed radical love in his willingness to be betrayed and crucified for us. He has given us a radical demand to love within our community here. And as we keep looking to his model and relying on his spirit, we can love amidst the real difficulty. And I pray that we would be a church that is marked by Jesus' standard of love. So let me pray and then let us sing The Servant King. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us in an unimaginably huge way. Father, help us in our human um, capacities to get a glimpse of the bigness of Jesus' love for us, suffering through the betrayal of his friends, suffering the horrors of his own death, so that we could have forgiveness and life with you forever. May that gospel message influence our relationships beyond this service and into the future. In Jesus' name, amen.